This is M.I.P. With Masamela Mafumo. Mark Thompson. Get woke. My name is Reverend Mark Thompson. I'm honored to be your moderator today and honored to um, be welcome into this community to help do some of the organizing for this weekend specifically and in general, some of the organizing around justice for Jalen Walker. Before we go another step further, uh, let me do, say a couple of things, a little bit of housekeeping. Um, we're kind of spread out. Why doesn't everybody come in a little closer, if you don't mind? Um, maybe even more toward the middle. Uh, we welcome you to do that. One, two, we'll be giving you an opportunity to visit the resource tables from some of our organizations that are present here today. We invite you to scan the QR code for the petition for Jalen Walker, the petition for justice for Jalen Walker. You may also, right where you sit, go to the website, justiceforjaland.us, justiceforjaland.us, amen. We, um, before we introduce our first panel, uh, we want to just give a little background about how we got here. We're going to talk today about where do we go from here, but some may want to know how we got here in the first place. Um, this is a significant weekend. Um, many of us remember the struggle even to get Dr. King a holiday. There were some who didn't want that. Um, and I think we all would agree that Dr. King was an humble enough man he probably would not have wanted a holiday. He would have wanted us to do just what he said here, organize, 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 build, baby, build, baby, build. And I believe, as I said last night, with all of the rampant modern-day lynchings in America in the form of police violence, Dr. King would have been in the forefront of that movement. And I believe Dr. King, if he were alive today, would have been here for Jalen Walker. But the fact of the matter is this, is, this is our history, this is our struggle. I believe nonviolence does not mean non-action, and love does not mean the absence of tough love. You know, we, we know folk we love, but sometimes we have to, in our love, straighten them out, don't we? The quote that is the theme for the weekend, Power, Love, Justice, comes from Dr. King, and it, is, it reads thusly. Power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. The power right now in this community rests with those who would bring harm to any of us, be it the police, or for that matter, we'll talk more about this in our second panel, some of the harms we commit against one another as black folk. We need to practice nonviolence towards ourselves first. But right now, this morning, we are demanding that power, we are speaking truth to power, that there would be justice for Jalen Walker. Justice at its best is power 
correcting everything that stands against our love for Jalen. And particularly, power is love implementing the demands of justice. We want to express our love now. We want to acknowledge her at the outset, both her and her daughter, Jalen's sister, Ms. Pamela Walker and Jada Walker. Please, folks, on your feet, give them a round of applause for their strength and their example. And we are so thankful for them and the inspiration they give us all. Amen? At this time, we have a very esteemed panel, uh, our first panel of the day. The second panel will deal with some internal issues as well as issue 10. Congratulations to this community. We've, I will say this, Tamika and I do a lot of work around the country in communities dealing with police violence. This is the most rapid and effective response that we've seen. It, within, what, uh, uh, six months ago we lost Jalen? By November, just a few months later, a piece of legislation for police accountability. You know how difficult that is to get done in a lot of communities. And to win that in a city like Akron. So you should be commended for that. We're going to talk about that more in the second panel. That's teeth. Uh, and and we, we are, we're so proud of this community for doing that. So we'll talk about that in the second panel, as well as issues like healing and trauma. Today we're going to talk, this, this morning in this first panel, we'll talk a little bit more specifically about the case and what we're going to do about it. So let me introduce our um, very special guests uh, on our panel. First of all, the president. I'm going to introduce everyone and then I'll ask the leading question. I'm just going to do introductions first. Uh, please welcome the, we all know and love her as the president of the Akron NAACP, Dr. Judy Hill. Give her a round of applause. What'd you, what'd you say? I am not a doctor. But we know preachers call each other. We, we okay. say doctor. We give everybody honorary doctors, don't we? All right. Um, we wanted young people involved in this. Amen? And we know the importance of young people to Dr. King, God rest his soul. Akron Public School student, she's also on the scholar board, correct, of Akron Public Schools, Casey Anderson. Give her a round of applause. What school you go to, Casey? Oh, I go to Akron Early College High School. Say it again. Akron Early College High School. Akron Early College High School. Wonderful. Thank you for being here. Uh, we also have from the Minority Behavioral Health Group, Dr. Ciara Dennis Morgan. Welcome to you. Thank you for being here. Um, someone I've, during this process, have begun to work very, very closely with and he's doing excellent work on behalf of the case and other cases like this around the country. Can't wait for you all to hear from him. Our good friend Bobby DiCello, give him a round of applause. Attorney for the family. He is representing the Jalen Walker uh, family. Another uh, young person, a youth activist, Lauren Goggins. Give Lauren a round of applause. Uh, and last uh, but not least, the founder of Until Freedom, the leader of the Women's March and a full-time activist around the country and around the world, my dear sister, Tamika Mallory. Give her a round of applause. Um, this is, uh, um, before we started, uh, Judy Hill. She was doing this last night. We were taking pictures, and she wanted them to be balanced. Uh, boy, girl, boy, girl, even though we're all adults. Um, but that's what she said. 
So we were coming up today. She said, well, where do you want us to sit? How many men? We want to be sure that it's balanced. Uh, it is not balanced. Um, and so normally it, it would be queens first. But I'm going to go to the man first. But also for this reason. I think we do well, wouldn't we, uh, for Bobby DiCello to bring us up to speed on where the case is, where the process is, um, what he sees, um, what he anticipates, and just so we can know on behalf of the family um, where things are. He will speak on their behalf as their attorney. So we'll begin uh, with you in the spirit of Dr. King. Um, and I didn't say this at the outset. We should greet each other like it is a holiday. Happy Martin Luther King Jr. Okay. weekend, y'all. Right. It just feels good to say that. Yeah. Bobby DiCello, um, please, where are we now with the Jalen Walker case? Thank you. Well, thank you, and uh, thank you for all who are on stage with me. It's an honor to be with such bright faces and, and friends and, and uh, national figures as well. Um, Jada, Pam, you guys all right? Okay. This case... Uh, is right now in a state where we eagerly anticipate the arrival of the BCI report. Uh, we don't have any timetable right now as to when that report's gonna be issued and if BCI continues to keep its word, it will not share any information with any outside agencies and we're working very hard to make sure that that's happening. Uh, on behalf of the family, I can't tell you about our investigative efforts, but they've been going on since day one. We don't have an investigator, we have teams of investigators. We don't have an idea, we have multiple ideas about what happened on that day, and we are aware of things that I wish I could share with you right now, but I can't. Someday you'll hear about it. The most troubling thing, though, still and forever, will be the comments made by the union the city, by enacting issue 10, spoke out against the union controlling law enforcement here in this city. And that is not a secret. The union has been the entity that continues to push for secrecy and a lack of accountability. And I speak out against the union today because that union has also made contact with some of the witnesses early on in this process. And I won't speak more about that. But we have been asked on behalf of the family to follow the rules, to listen to law enforcement do their investigation, to be good citizens, to be fair, to let the process play out. And I'm going to urge and call upon all law enforcement officials, be they union or otherwise, to do the exact same thing. Stay away from the investigation. Let it play out. The family is also going to be calling for the prosecution of every single one of the officers who shot that night. We expect, we hope that BCI supports that conclusion as well, and we hope that a special prosecutor comes to the conclusion that a submission to the grand jury is what comes next. That would be ideal. But I'm not naive, and I know you're not either. So we've also braced for the possibility that BCI would not see it the way the Walker family would want it to be seen. And we're also bracing for the possibility that there will not be a prosecution, that there could not be 
an indictment. And when that day, or if that day comes, we are going to ask every one of you to act. And so that's where we're at. We're in a position right now where we're waiting, we're working. I can't share with you what we're doing, but I guarantee you they're the Walker family is in good hands, and we're going to keep pushing for accountability on their behalf. Thank you, Bobby. Let's give Bobby a round of applause. We're going to have an opportunity for questions from the audience as well, and I'm sure you all will have questions for Bobby as the attorney. Joining us uh, on the panel as well, he's going to share with us a bit later. We all know and love our brother. Uh, he is an Instagram star, <laughs> and um, he has been outspoken about a lot of things, in particular, this habit that some of us have of filming mistreatment toward our people, particularly young women, and more being, folks being more interested in filming it than intervening and doing something about it. Um, and he's also founded the Boycott Black Murder uh, campaign and Kings Stop Killing Kings. We'll hear from him a bit later. Our brother, my son, give him a round of applause. We want to hear from others in the panel, and in the interest of time, we'll ask, uh, and Bobby was fine in terms of his time, we want everybody to keep, follow Bobby's example and be brief so we can have time um, for uh, questions. So we'll begin with the uh, president of the Akron uh, NAACP. Um, how does this, or how does Dr. King, Judy Hill, uh, inform yours and the NAACP's direction when it comes to addressing justice for Jalen Walker. Um, thank you, uh, first of all, for this um, opportunity. This is a wonderful opportunity for all of us to come together and to heal and to move forward. Um, but I just want to, I think what Dr. King has been saying to us all along, and it goes back to a comment my brother said earlier about balance. I'm so into balance because I think we're off balance. We're off balance in our justice system. We're off balance in our community. We're off balance with a lot of the things that we say and do that hurt us. And so I think from me, Dr. King set an example. He tried to set a tone. Folks, we gotta get back in balance. We gotta get it back together. Our families loved one another. Our organizations worked together. And that's what we have found in this quest to bring justice for Jalen Walker. We're trying to get back in balance. And I'm gonna stay that course. As long A, as the family continues to require us, we will be there. As long as the community respects and wants us there, we'll be there. And so we're gonna be marching. We're gonna be doing whatever it takes to move the needle. Right now we have the issue 10 implementation process moving forward. I hope that if you're an individual who believes in justice, who fits um, willing to learn and to grow and to help the city grow that you will apply. And so that's one of the things that we wanna do is encourage individuals to apply. We need our balance on that commission. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hill, we appreciate you. Let's give her a round of applause. Um, Casey, as a, as a student, from your point of view, what, what are your thoughts about Jalen's case and seeking justice for Jalen Walker? And our young people in Akron talking about the case and, and showing interest in seeking justice for Jalen Walker? Um, for 
for me, I definitely feel like I agree with the interview that was on the screen with the young lady from Walsh High School, I believe. Um, I definitely believe that we need to do what we can to be a part of making justice or getting justice for Jalen and definitely doing all that we can do because there's not much that we can do as minors and I do understand that. But as long as we can do what we can do, I believe that that can really be helpful from us as a youth. All right, thank you, Casey. We appreciate it. Please give Casey a round of applause as well. Um, Dr. Dennis Morgan, first of all, uh, share with the audience, for those who may not know, and we are streaming around the country and around the world right now, um, not only our platforms, but uh, let's shout out Roland Martin. He's streaming this live as well. Give Roland Martin a round of applause also. Um, thank you, Brother Roland. Um, Dr. Dennis Morgan, first of all, in introduce to the country the Minority Behavioral Health Group, what it does, uh, and its role in terms of dealing with community violence and community uh, uh, trauma, and specifically how that impacts uh, the Jalen Walker case, if you would. Yeah, I would love to. Um, good morning, everybody. Um, still morning. So yeah, so I'm the clinical director at Minority Behavior Health Group, and I'm super happy to talk about MBHG, um, because MBHG is ours. Um, we're a black-owned, state-certified, nationally-accredited mental health agency, and our model of care um, is so different than uh, the standard model of care, right? Because the, the model that we use is based upon how oppression can create psychological distress. So racism and all of the isms and what we're here talking about today, that is what produces trauma and what produces anxiety and depression and internalized racism and et cetera. And so um, that's what we're about, that's why we exist um, and that's the care that we provide in an individual basis as well as a collective basis, whether that's healing spaces and circles, whether that's how we consult and advocate. Um, and yes, especially in the, in the healing that's done, um, like I said, individually and group-wise. So yes. What was Thank the you. second part? Remind me. What was the second I question? You, I think you answered it. I answered it? Okay. Yeah. So yeah, we're about healing well, and, and liberation. And, and so the trauma... We, we have the family here, but we all are traumatized. Absolutely. I don't live here, but I can't get this off my mind. Um, there is something called anosognosia, um, which means long-term transgenerational trauma brought from our experience during enslavement. And so I think the work you all are doing, I just want to say, that, and, and I'm a student of Dr. Francis Cress Wilson. How many people have heard of Dr. Francis Cress Wilson? Few people, amen. I would recommend you all read her works when she talks about mental health and behavioral health and the role white supremacy has on us. And some of us are subconscious and don't even realize it. I'll give you an example. Isn't it interesting how whenever a child, a black child is born. By the time that child, even today, if a child is a toddler, a child is born today and becomes a toddler, by the time they become a toddler, that child knows all the songs and all the dance moves of Michael Jackson. And Michael Jackson is not alive. These, these children haven't seen Michael Jackson. That's transgenerational, and that's part of our culture. It's handed down 
It's just automatic. Little kids love Michael Jackson, never seen him, never heard him. If an entertainer or a cultural experience can be passed through us transgenerationally, so too can trauma. And so I think a lot of times we won't acknowledge and won't admit some of us still have within us some of the trauma from the Middle Passage. And it manifests itself in the way we treat one another, and it manifests itself in some of our fears and anxieties and us convincing ourselves we are less than and cannot be who we want to be. And sometimes convinces ourselves that we can't win some of the battles we must win. So, you know, I, we wanted the Minority Behavioral Health Group to be here because we need to address our problems based upon our experiences. So we thank you. Dr. Yeah, one more thing. Please, please. That? So that's beautiful because that's super important. And what we also have to remember is just as that, um, as you started, right, it's that deep structure of culture that shows up in us. And Dr. Myers, who created the model of care that we use at MBHG, she's a black psychologist out of Ohio State. She's talking about transgenerational triumph as well, right, and how that's passed down. And how we heal ourselves and how we're liberated is we have to return back to African-centered values to keep us well. And that's what Dr. King is talking about. That's nonviolence, right? That's all of these other principles and values that run within us, like in the deep structure of who we are. And that's how we show up and create change because it's what we believe in, what we live in, how it shows up in all of our roles. Amen. So that's beautiful. Thank you for Amen. That. Amen. Thank you. Um, Lauren, another youth here, youth activist. Lauren, talk to us about... Um, what justice for Jalen means to you. And I'll ask you the same question I asked Casey. Um, how do we, how involved are the youth in this movement? How do we get them more involved? Uh, <laughs> well, for one, I think weekends like this is very important because you're calling on young people to give their opinion and be involved and being involved with um, the Akron branch of the NAACP Youth Council and actually just that being a foundation for education to actually know what's going on around us and being informed and involved in everything that's going on around us, I feel like that's a call. And one of the biggest things that I think will and is going to enact change is education. Um, as you guys were saying before, you know, actually getting back to our roots, but acknowledging the past, that way we are able to propel and actually change and enact change in the future. We can't change the future and have a good future if we don't understand the past. Mm -hmm. So I think education is most definitely a big one. And yeah. All right, thank you, Lauren, <laughs> thank you. Um, Tamika was here for the funeral. In fact, when I first came, I came with Tamika. Uh, we came to the funeral together along with Mice. Um, and she's been watching this case very closely um, amongst other cases around the country. First of all, Tamika, welcome back to Akron. W what are your thoughts? And, and, and also from a national perspective, because we know while this is a local struggle, the struggle against police violence is a, is a national movement. So how important is this case, how important is justice for Jalen Walker nationally, Tamika, and what are, what are you seeing and what reactions are you getting as you talk to people around the country about this case? 
Well, first of all, let me just say um, to the Walker family, I am humbled to be in your presence again, and I hope that these last six months, there's been a lot more peace than pain. Um, and so we are here, and I'm here, because as we said when we were here a few months ago, that we would not leave and that we would continue to return to be here to support your family and to consistently stand up for uh, Jalen. And um, I hope, hopefully this is an example of, of us being committed to this fight, that we have returned. My family uh, members actually live here in Akron. And so I do get a little bit of information about what is happening locally from them. And I have to say that, you know, the one thing um, that I think uh, Reverend Thompson, my brother Mark, that we should be very mindful of is our presence around funerals and high times, and then how as a movement, we do not stick and stay consistent sometimes. And a lot of that has to do with how many of these cases are happening around the nation, right? And therefore, the local community has a big responsibility to keep the fire burning and to keep the uh, action on the ground. I remember when we moved to Louisville, Kentucky uh, to stand with Breonna Taylor's family, we went there because although there were some local folks that were out and they were, you know, they were galvanized, they were sleeping actually in a park overnight for weeks um, trying to keep awareness on Breonna Taylor's uh, situation. But when we first show, showed up, there was a few voices, not enough of a real movement. And we realized that we could not, from New York, in the midst of a pandemic, go back and forth to our families, traveling. We all uh, got COVID. Uh, the Instagram, what do you, what do he call you? Just the Instagram famous or something Instagram like that. Instagram oh, stuff. Instagram famous over here was like, nah, I don't want to be on, uh, on, on the internet. I want to be there in the midst of the movement with the people helping to get people organized. And once we decided, we made that decision to stay there in Kentucky, it helped to spark people saying, okay, you guys from the outside are willing to come and be here with us, then we certainly can keep this going every day. And at 12 o'clock every single afternoon, we had a march. We hit the streets, right? Breonna Taylor had been, and the difference with Jalen and Breonna Taylor is that she was dead for two months and there was no attention at all on her case, none. Um, and there were some people, there, were, there was local clergy, there were elected officials telling us to let the process play out. But we knew that a black woman, first of all, shot and killed in her home where they had uh, concocted this whole story around a drug dealer being in the house and you know, they found a way to criminalize her we knew nothing would happen if we did not keep the pressure on. And so when I think about Dr. King, and Mark, I often agree with you about everything, but I will push back on one thing you said today, that Dr. King would be here. Dr. King would be 94 years old. He should be, if he was alive, at home resting, right, with his family and not having to continue to show up in the movement because they, what, what about us? What are we doing? He was 40 years old, 39 when he died? 39. 39 when he died. 
We're the 39-year-olds, right, that will keep this movement going. That is our responsibility. It is not the responsibility of our seniors, our elders, to have to carry a movement. So the call, the charge has to be today. What are we willing to do? And how can we take Dr. King's fire that he fought until he died, and he fought against his own people? That's a part of the story that we don't often like to talk about. We constantly have this romanticized conversation, or at least this, it works for us to look at the outsiders as the villain. But if we would actually look on the inside, we would find that our own people are often the biggest issue that we have in terms of fighting for justice because too many of our people are either too comfortable or too afraid to speak truth to power and to stand as Dr. King had to stand at times when other clergy members told him to be quiet and to go back to where he was from. And he said injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere and therefore he showed up and here we are continuing to show up in Akron, Ohio today. Yep. Thank you, Tamika. Uh, and she's right in terms of, I mean, not literally, he would be 94. I know, I know, but I have But since to. she asked the question, how many 30-somethings like me are in the audience? Raise your hand. <laughs> Did I say, I'm not did even I, did I say something funny? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, Tamika's right, because even Dr. King, you know, we, we romanticize and have a mythical figure now, but he was a regular person like the rest of us. He was an exceptional person. Right. He went, as Tamika and Mice did, went and um, what you call bivouacked mm. in Louisville. That's a military term where you go and set up temporarily in a space to, to organize and have struggle there. Dr. King would do that from city to city. And it's human nature. There was tension even when he went to those places. It was the, one of the crosses Dr. King always would have to bear. He would be invited to a place uh, by the local people. But because of his stature, he would get the most attention even in the local space. And then the local people would be mad at him. Right. You know, why you invite me in the first place? Just one quick anecdote. Um, I had the pleasure of knowing uh, Dr. Fred Shuttlesworth, the uh, pastor of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham that was bombed, and he was the leader of the Birmingham movement, and he told me this story. They invited Dr. King to Birmingham, and he said, Mark, I had to keep reminding Dr. King, I'm the leader <laughs> of the Birmingham movement. Dr. King, you are my guest. That's how you talk to Dr. King. So they were in Dr. King's hotel room one night, and uh, the phone rang, and back then there were no cordless phones, so it was a long cord, Dr. King wanted privacy, he took the phone into the bathroom with the long cord, stayed there for about 20 minutes. Fred Shuttlesworth asked uh, Ann Young and Ralph Abernathy, who is he in there on the phone with all that time? And they said, oh, that's Bobby Kennedy, just matter-of-factly. And Fred Shuttlesworth said, uh-uh. If Martin's on the phone with Bobby Kennedy, I need to be on the phone with Bobby Kennedy because I'm the leader of the Birmingham movement. And he went in and took the phone. Uh, but that tension exists. And we still have to overcome it, work together, but there can be creative tension uh, that can grow for that. And by the way, um, God be praised, not only do we have a Martin Luther King holiday, every time you fly in the Birmingham airport now, it says, welcome to Fred Shuttlesworth Airport, amen. amen. So amen. that's a wonderful thing. <laughs> yeah. um, Might um, I add something? 
Um, yes. <laughs> well, yes, and in, in that, and just that we do have a what, as you guys were saying earlier, a balance, knowing when that when we actually do need to like sit down and regroup. And I think education, like I said before, is a part of that. Knowing, because there's, there's going to be different people in different parts. Um, you know, we have some people who are going to be outside right. and, you know, applying pressure and, you know, pushing back. And then we also have people who are going to talk and be in, um, you know, what? Be in, like, the office and having those conversations. Mm -hmm. But I think people on the ground and having that communication between um, the different parts of the movement is very, very important. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I will always remember, the Walker family, um, you guys just pushing and just making sure that everybody knew to come out peacefully, peacefully, and not to, you know, be making too, too much noise. Make noise, but uh, <laughs> uh, useful noise, not to be a distraction. So, you know, too many people can't just be pointing fingers like, oh, look at the, what they're doing. See, that's like, this is why we can't have movements and stuff like that. But to emphasize on peace, but also knowing and being humble enough, knowing when to sit down and have conversations. So. And, and I, I appreciate that. And, and you know, I, I know Freedom Block was here. Um, and, you know, we, we learned a lot just watching how they were operating and managing uh, the community, if you will, and the protest and everything that was happening uh, during that time. And so, you know, and I sent a lot of our support towards Freedom Block because you're right, there is a balance that I know those sort of younger uh, grassroots organizers are often overlooked in the movement space. Um, and the resources generally go to organizations where either the leader is more known and or the organization, the brand is more known. And so it's, it's also very important for all of us as we're thinking of who to donate to, how to keep these movements going, we have to keep the freedom blocks um, you know, successful and make sure that they are strong so that they can continue to motivate people to hit the streets. So that's one thing uh, that I think is important. And, to your point about the balance, since we're talking about Dr. King, I often bring up um, when I'm speaking, especially during this time, this film, uh, wh what is it called? King the in the Wilderness. King in the Wilderness. King in the Wilderness. Thank you, my son. Instagram. Um, it's funny. That was the, <laughs> that was the funniest thing ever. He's an Instagram star. Instagram star. Yeah. Um, so in King in the Wilderness, I would suggest, I'm sorry, I'm a little under the weather, so I'm slow, but... Uh, I would suggest that everyone, especially younger people who are here, go and watch that film. It is about the last uh, few days, if you will, I guess, you know, a few months of Dr. King's life. So he knows at this point, he has a feeling that he is going to die. Um, and it is very evident in the, the, the depression that you see, he's quiet, people around him are also feeling like something is going to happen. And there are signs, of course, there's threats. Um, and the tension is very, very strong. And so he's operating, still trying to lead a movement in the midst of knowing that his own life at any moment will be taken. And there's this moment in the film where he is in the march walking, they're on their way to, I'm just gonna make it up because I don't remember, but it may have been Montgomery, I don't know, but they're walking together, a bunch of people. And there's a reporter who is talking to him 
and asking him, what do you think the next, you know, as today, where do we go from here? How should we move forward? And Dr. King says, you know, nonviolence is the way, you know, we have to maintain peace. He talks about how nonviolence does not mean that it's passive. Um, and he, you know, goes through a whole thing. And then Stokely Carmichael is walking right next to him. And so the reporter turns from Dr. King and goes to Stokely Carmichael and said, what do you think we should do? What's the way forward? The same question that she asked um, Dr. King, she asked Stokely Carmichael. And I am not saying that we should do this, but metaphorically, she asked him, what do you think? And he turned around and said, I think we should burn this whole damn thing down, <laughs> right? The interesting thing about it is that these are two people in the same march, going in the same direction, standing next to one another with two different ideologies about how to get there. Their tactics are different. I don't think that Stokely Carmichael meant really blow it up, but what he meant is that he was going to be stronger in the way in which he spoke. He was going to be less politically correct, not so much stronger, but less politically correct and, and, and aggressive in, in his tone and approach. Oftentimes, what we have to be very careful of is silencing those who do have a stronger presence that is not being done exactly as we would like to see it happen because it makes us uncomfortable. There are people who need to be allowed to hit the streets in the middle of the night after the curfew to push the police department to have to respond to consistent resistance. And we should never position ourselves to call them out when in fact the job that Dr. King consistently pointed to Stokely Carmichael and those who were in other movements and said, hey, I can meet with you, Mr. President, but if you don't give me something, those guys and gals that are out there, they're not gonna be happy. So you've gotta get me, give me something to return to the community with. So we have to stop telling our people that they have to act a certain way in order to be in the movement. No, they should not be violent. We should never, ever, ever support that. But we should also allow them to push the envelope. And there are some people who have a courage and or a positioning that is necessary so that the system does not get comfortable and people don't feel like they can kill us and get away with it and walk away and, and live, you know, peacefully. Not so much peacefully. Let me take that. Let me be careful with that word because we do believe in peace. But they need not feel comfortable in their homes and in their positions of power without feeling the wrath of what has happened to our community. And I'll give a little, a little um, add to that. Malcolm X also said that, right? He, he talked about Dr. King. And he said, I'm the old, if, if, if Dr. King's way doesn't work, then you have to deal with my way, mm -hmm. right? So you had to understand, a lot, of, they lost, a lot of people lost their freedom and their lives in this movement, right? So we understand that as much as we want to be peaceful, there has to be something that you're willing to sacrifice. If our marches are turning into parades now, right? Because the police are saying you can walk around the block 50 times and then you can get off the block. So there's, there's no threat of anything. There's no threat of the, the traffic stopping. There's no threat of somebody being inconvenienced at all. So if we don't cause some level of inconvenience, then these people go home and, and, and their job is done. So the reality is the reason why we don't see what's supposed to happen for Jalen 
is because we are not being passionate and aggressive enough as a people. Yeah. We have to be aggressive, we have to be peaceful, but we have to be aggressive, we have to be willing to lose our freedom. We have to say we're not, we're not, gonna, we're not trying to do anything. Peaceful protest is definitely needed, but it has to be a protest. That's right. A protest mm -hmm. means that we're doing something to show that we are not with what's happening. Mm -hmm. So if we continue to just march and we continue to do everything that the, the justice system says they are going to allow us to do, that's within the confines and the comfortability of the same system that has took this man's life, then we will never get justice. Right. Necessary trouble. That's right. You know, that's good trouble. trouble. It's really funny as we're having this conversation, I'm sitting over here and I know Ray is probably doing the same thing because that's exactly what we did. We right. got uncomfortable right. in our comfortableness. Number one, we created the balance. So you have the NAACP and Freedom Block together. walking together. And people are like, oh God, I'm scared of Freedom Block, but I know the NAACP. But then they got scared of us. And now they're scared of everybody. Mm. But I don't want them to be afraid. I want them to understand. Mm. Understand that we bring a sense of power and commitment to our community just like they do. And so it's interesting as you're talking, we definitely moved the needle at Akron doing that same thing. Mm. And creating the balance. I'm sorry, I keep going back to it. Because that's where my heart is this year. Creating the balance of understanding that we bring something to the table, whether it's quiet NAACP or the rock of the freedom block, but all of us together, because the power of issue 10, the power of all of us coming together, it was freedom block, NAACP, elected officials, um, it was ministers, it was community folk, it was our young people. We were all out there marching and people were like, oh, you know, ACP is marching like that. Oh my God, what are we going to do? You better open the door and talk to somebody. Mm -hmm. Because if we don't start the dialogue, we can only do what we can do. But all of us together, we can make beautiful music. Amen. 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 I want to thank you all. I want, Bobby, I'm going to come to you in a second about some, something specific to the case. But, but as we're having this conversation, Dr. Dennis Morgan, is, is it also, is it not therapeutic for us too, as a people, <coughs> resist and organize? Isn't that a way of addressing our trauma rather than containing it within and holding it within? Isn't it healthy for us as black folk to resist? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so what I was thinking about is this idea, right? We have to broaden our thinking, which is what all of y'all were just saying around what nonviolence means and is. And it is not, it's violent to be silent on certain things, right? And you have to think about how violence shows up in you and how you cause harm. If you're not being true to what you're here to do and true to justice, that's violence. And so how we live within the spirit and what is the spirit of nonviolence and how it shows up in the different roles that y'all just called up out and how we should not be doing harm to each other in that process. Um, so t the getting together, the protesting, the getting loud, the, all, the organization, the intentionality behind all of it, it is therapeutic, it's important, it's necessary, um, and it's what this idea of beloved community, like it's what we have to do um, and very much a part of the process. And in the therapy of being together, there is grief, there is processing of that, mm -hmm. and there is, um, there's so many pieces to it as y'all talk about balance two things can be true, right? Like we can be traumatized and in the trauma of that, but then also in the beauty of community as we fight towards and live within the spirit of justice. So absolutely it's necessary. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so just to also focus us on some other details, because I don't really know if everybody is aware of these details. Bobby DiCello, 
the eight officers under investigation for firing what more than nine? How many shots were fired? Over ninety. Over ninety. Yeah. Um, mm. Those officers under investigation are back at work. Yes. On desk duty now, correct? Yes. How many of you knew that? Okay. Now, talk to us about that and, and what that means and what your position is in response to that, them being back at work. Yeah, so uh, I want to pull in together all the things that Tamika just said, and what a powerful message you said, um, and, and as well yourself. Uh, in that same movie that you cited, Dot Martin, for those of you who don't know, I, Martin, it's Martin Luther King in the Wilderness, I think, as you said. King in the Wilderness. King in the wilderness. Uh, there's a moment where he's being interviewed, and he speaks of the transition of the movement in the previous 10 years to the day he's standing there, which is 11 months before he's killed, he's interviewed. And he speaks of the transition from decency to true equality as the two phases of the movement. And he felt at the time that he was being interviewed when he was in this movie that we were hopefully heading towards true equality. That was the tough spot to be because people were um, outraged by Bull Connor. They were outraged by what was happening. And outrage is kind of what we're talking about right now and how we express outrage. Now think about that. So have we moved forward? Well, we're back here again. And there's a lawyer standing on this, sitting on the stage next to folks who organize to get justice, we're not talking about true equality yet. Right. I mean, true equality, is, to quote King, was something that nobody was really bargaining for at the time. They weren't really serious about true equality for all of us. He speaks of being able to integrate a park easier than it is to integrate a school system or to give real good education to a full system. You can integrate a lunch line easier than you can you know, fix the way transportation's working, right? So, in the same spirit of your question, Come on, I Bobby, have, knowing yeah. the movie, go ahead on. No, no, no. And I, no, I came it, ready. But to me, See, but, I'm, but I'm, hold it, Bobby. Yes. Let me just say this. Let me show you how you all on the same wavelength. Yeah. Bobby and I talked late last night, and he was talking to me about the movie. I know you were gonna bring it up today. Yes, why? So why? that, that yeah. movie's been, we've talked about that movie in the past 12 hours, yeah. and it's obviously on everybody's screen. Well, and, and so there, the other thing, so as a white guy in this conversation. That was my point. You white? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bobby, you, you white? That? Did you notice Did y'all know Bobby was white? By the way, did you also notice? I didn't want to say it. Did you also notice that I'm the only person here that people are looking at me going, he's got another reason for being here. The reality is I've had to listen more than I've talked, and thank you for giving me the mic again, because I'm going to talk just a minute more. Come on. When, when uh, James Baldwin is debating Jeff, uh, uh, Mr. Buckley in 1965, he says when he stands in front of everyone in Oxford in this great debate about what was then going to be the social rights debate, uh, social, uh, excuse me, social justice uh, human rights debate of its time, William F. Buckley at the time is the conservative mouthpiece of the conservative world. And of course, James Baldwin, a poet and writer and a speaker with King in many, time, in many occasions, referred to him as Jimmy. Uh, it's fascinating. Says when he rises to a whole white audience, in order to know my experience, you have to live my experience. Mm. Now, I have not lived your experience. So to respond to this question, which was put to me very simply, is what do you think about the guys who are reemployed? 
Wait, what hat do you want me to wear? Uh, the lawyer hat says there are rules and there's a union and there are people pushing back and there's politics and we could have that, that, that kind of debate and that's not boring, right? That's not what we're here to talk about. The question is, does the mayor have the courage to think about true equality? Mm. Really, that's what it's about. Does the white mayor have the courage to think about the principle of true equality, mm. not the principle not the principle of how it is that a union interfaces with your chief and makes your day easier. Mm. And understand, when I made my comments about the union earlier, guys, I'm going to say it again and again and again. I'm not going to talk about the case because I don't want anybody to get mad at me yet about that because I, can, I got a license I got to keep. I got to keep working for these folks. The truth of the matter is the political situation in this town, the political situation, ignores true equality. Wow. The political situation is about complacency and learned helplessness. It's about, uh, there's a system too big for me to make a difference. There's a system where only, look, this lawyer's going to get involved and he's going to sue some people and they're going to make some money and it's all going to fit, it's all going to work out, and next person's going to die, and we're going to have another speech and another round table and we're all going to talk about King and people are going to cry and we're all going to do this again. And this whole thing continues over and over and over in one stage, and it's in the outrage stage that King said he thought he got through by 1967. So, what do I think? I think it's outrageous. I think that we have to focus on true equality. And what Tamika said, and I am so grateful for your words today, because I, don't, I can't say what you said the way you said it, but I can only agree with it. You can't leave it to the lawyers, guys. And you can't leave it to the people who have some money, and you can't leave it to the people who have a company. And the sponsors are great. But we all need to do this. That's what King said, and that's exactly what you just said. This is our march to true equality. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Bobby. And, and, and to be real, as Bobby says, it, it owes over and over and over again. Law enforcement killed Dr. King himself. Mm, mm, mm. Talk now. We know that now. That is beyond a shadow of a doubt. And, and this, continues, um, this continues to happen. Uh, Judy Hill, the chief of police claimed that um, some of you all, and I know you weren't there, but, and this shows the dishonesty of it, he claimed several people, including Judy Hill and some clergy, he met with them and they agreed that these eight officers should be reinstated. And this community had to stand up once again and say that wasn't true, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the chief lied. It's getting uncomfortable. Truth is the light and the light's the word. Um, truth is this. He met with me to share with me what his actions were going to be. That's not input. Mm. That wasn't agreeance. It was sharing with me 20 minutes before it was announced on TV. That's truth. Yeah. Um, he met with a separate group of clergy. And you start, you know, telling lies on preachers. That's a whole another thing. Can a whole lot of folk help you out? So that we know that that was not true. 
that those preachers, as a matter of fact, that meeting took place in August of last year, I believe, and the preacher said, you must consult with the family. Right. They said, it's not even up to us. You need to consult with the family. Um, now, that was in August. And I just want to report to you all the nefariousness of what the chief did. Now, if he was going to ignore the preacher at any time, ladies and gentlemen, he could have done it the day after the meeting in August or in September. But he waited to do it after our march on Columbus Day yeah. or Indigenous Peoples Day. He waited to do it then cynically to retaliate and to knock the march out of the news cycle. Does, does everybody understand? Why not do it August 30th or September 1st? Why not even do it a week after our march? He did it the next morning. Bobby, I don't, you know, I don't want to get you in trouble for the different hats you're trying to wear today. That's I know fine. it's, it's overlap. I'll put them all on. I got Tamika with me. I'm good. Yeah, yeah. I'm all right. <laughs> I just want to add something to this conversation just for a moment. Um, and it goes back to something I believe Tamika or you said, Bobby. Yeah. Um, when well intentions of individuals are stymied because they work for a system, whether it's the police department, mm -hmm. um, a mayoral system, that won't allow you to do what's right. Uh, Ray and I have this conversation all the time. We talk about humanity. And for me, it is about humanity. When does humanity take over? When we make our decisions, when we do things. And for me, that's a part of the balance of life that's missing. And I believe, I really believe that that decision was purposeful. The day after, I believe that it wasn't by one person and that the system, the system felt that was the way to do it. You know, uh, if I could, just for a second, I, am, I work with a group called Justice Defenders. Um, some folks might know about Justice Defenders because they actually train Africans who are illiterate, who are in prison, to read, write, know what the word guilty or not guilty means, for example, and then go in front of a judge and ask for a chance to visit with the judge. Because in Africa, specifically Kenya, where we are right now, um, you don't have that right. You don't have a lot of rights. So you gotta be able to speak your mind and you have to be literate in order to do it. So um, Malcolm McLean, who was interviewed by 60 Minutes and Anderson Cooper, uh, you gotta watch the show. It's a great introduction to justice defenders. They've come to America. Justice Defenders went to Iowa or Idaho to visit with prisoners and security personnel and folks here. And Justice Defenders, we brought prison guards and prisoners, former prisoners who were freed. We freed 30,000 Africans, wow. 30,000 through this educational process. And I say we, I should say Justice Defenders. Those freed prisoners and those guards got together and talked with our guards and our prisoners, who were still confined. And at the end of the meeting, walked out saying, that the American uh, guards and prisoners walked out saying, why, why are they able to talk? Why are they able to figure this out? Why are they able to, to work together? And so there was a meeting, and I'll spare the details, where we got together, many of us from Justice Defenders who are part of that organization, and we, we were talking about that. And we came to some conclusions, right? I mean, our system 
of justice as we work it today, the court stuff, right, and the, and the jail stuff that we're all fighting, and the law enforcement stuff, is about 100 years old mm-hmm. yeah. as it's currently working today. I mean, 100 years ago today, there were still public executions with ropes. So things have gotten a little better in some respects, but we're really only about 100 years old. But 100 years of a system right. turns people into sleepy, I, I, I can't do anything. I'm just the prison guard. I'm just the lawyer. I'm just the, the mayor. I'm, I'm just, just the mayor. Chief. I'm just the chief. Yeah. I'm just this. I'm just that. Just. And then they just throw their hands up, and then we have to take action and do something about right. it. So, to your point. And I think that's a lot of what it is, is that complacency is because in getting back to just even taking, um, talking about just humanity, when as humanity we're going to be tired of this, but I think a lot of this conversation and a lot of the fight between the community and um, police departments is that most people don't want to actually own up to their own biases and even mm. are just don't want to have that uncomfortable conversation. America, just in general, doesn't want to have that uncomfortable conversation between um, history and what actually has happened with black folk in America and the justice system. Um, so people, you know, you get like, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just doing my job. I'm just here to, you know, get my check and just, just go home. But it's like, when are we going to be done with just doing our jobs and actually challenge and create a better space to be in? Yeah. Like, the Constitution literally says to get better and make a better place for us. So when are we actually going to do that? I think right. I, I, I'll right. add a little, and that's dope. That's amazing. Give her a round of applause for that. That's <laughs> amazing. Yeah. You know, when we enter into these systems, right, and, and we call ourselves people of good moral character and moral fiber, right, our goal into entering into these systems and to insert that character into these systems, right, and that's and if we're not entering into systems like that, then we're we're not doing anything at all. Mm. You know, we're doing a disservice. Like we keep saying that we need to be a part of the government. We gotta elect these officials and we need black people to be in the police, you know, part of the police academy. If those black people aren't willing to stand up and say, This is wrong. Right. Right? If 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 we don't have people in government that see the structure and are, are are not afraid to lose the job because they went into the job to do a different job, there you know, you then we're actually wasting our time. So I want us I want us to have our own call to action. Mm-hmm. Right? And every day. Because there's a reality in this country that people have complacency and everybody is saying, I'm just doing my job. But you have to say, what is your job? Mm-hmm. Right? What what is your own moral job? You know. Coretta Scott King said, every generation must fight for his own freedom and his own justice. And it's time for us as this generation to fight for ours. Dr. King was uncomfortable. He lost his life. And we, we praise these leaders every day. We look at them and we romanticize. Like we said, they went through a lot. They sacrificed a lot. They were uncomfortable. They said, they said on TV that... It, things were wrong. They had people hating on them. They had their own kinds hating on us. What are we actually willing to sacrifice to see the beloved community, to, to see justice, to really see change? You know, and I know for me, it's uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable every day because I'm the person in the room that is saying the things that nobody else wants to hear. 
I'm not going along to get along. I'm not, I don't want to be part of the trend. If the trend is coward culture, I don't want to be a part of coward culture. Because I think that's what we are in now. Everybody is comfortable being quiet and being cowardice. I don't have that, I have no will to coexist with people who don't have the same moral fiber that I have. And I'm willing to break down that structure at any given time. So everyone, every time we enter these rooms and we have these conversations, it's cool and we go home, are you really doing something to change? Are you, are you walking into the system that you know is, is harming our people, the injustice that's being inflicted on our people? Are you willing to speak up? Are you speaking truth to power? Are you the person that's making everybody else that's following the trend uncomfortable, or are you just following the trend? Right, right. I want to thank you, Mice. Give him a round of applause, too, folks. Um, I want to do this. Um, and uh, the panelists for the next panel, which is, should start just about on time. Before we close out this panel, we're gonna hear something special from ICE. Um, in about 15 minutes, um, Reverend Bishop Barber is gonna join us virtually, mm -hmm. amen. And then we'll hear from the other panel. But just before that, those of you who have uh, questions for this panel, we invite you to line up at the mics now. I should have said it earlier so you can go ahead and get situated. But come forward now uh, if you have any questions for this panel here. Does anybody have a question they'd like to ask? Please come forward. Please, ma'am. Come on up. Come on up to the mic so we can hear you and everybody around who's watching on the stream can hear you as well. Or we, unless we have someone that can uh, carry the mic out to um, those, uh, those that are on the floor. I don't know if anybody wants to volunteer to do that. Um, yeah. Okay. People coming. Amen. And we do appreciate this panel. Yes, ma'am. It's on, it should be on there. I think it's on there. Well, no, well, go ahead, ma'am, but we'll, I'll just repeat it because the mic doesn't seem to work. Is this one working over here? Yeah, we'll, one I think it just lit up. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Oh. One, two, one, two. One, two, one, two. Okay, it's, it's working now as well. Good afternoon, panel. Um, thank everybody for being here. This is so awesome um, and amazing and honor uh, to be present with y'all today. So, um, Dr. Sierra, I do have a question for you regarding our Nguza Saba, the principles of Mayat, um, and speaking towards how we can do more regarding our or those principles to integrate more togetherness and bringing us together under the umbrella of Ujima uh, regarding us making this a national movement, uh, everyday movement, walking, talking it out amongst each other. Um, for those of y'all that don't know, I work with Dr. Sierra and our um, sisterhood circles um, here in Akron for the Infant Vitality Initiative. Um, but how do we do that to engage and bring more young people to the forefront um, and to keep more people engaged? Yeah, thank you. Hey, Erica. Um, so that's a beautiful question. I think it goes back to what you said um, about Lauren, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> about 
uh, information and history and the importance of that and like those values, right? So Erica is talking about Naguzu Saba and um, those are the, the principles of Kwanzaa. And we use another set of values, which are the virtues of Mayat, which is truth, justice, order, reciprocity, righteousness. You get what I'm saying? So it's those values, right? And it's what everybody has been saying already and knowing your role and getting so uncomfortable in your role and living for it, like being willing to die for it because that's what we're here to do anyway. So it's really tapping into like, we really are here with great purpose, which is one of the values, right, Nia, to restore people back to our traditional greatness. Because what we're talking about is that this is so deep that people think that and have for years thought that we are not human, but really know that we are and really are like so spiritual and so amazing, right? So it's that deep that people have dehumanized who we are, that we are here to live in great purpose, to live in these values of Ujima, which is making my brothers and sisters problems, my problems, and we solve them together. It's us organizing, it's us following leadership, it's us being uncomfortable, it's us knowing our roles, and if you don't know your role, being willing to explore that and find your way through it. Um, it's being in community, it's being challenged, it's being accountable. And so there's so many ways, because another value Erica is talking about is creativity, is kuumba, and making this place more beautiful than how we found it, right? Yeah. And so there's all of these values that are ours. We don't need another framework. We have frameworks. It's about finding our role within it and moving in it and living for it and dying for it, because that's what Dr. King did. It's being so, like, convicted by it, so, like, I'm here for this that... I, I'm willing to die for this. Yeah. And that's what we have to do. And we all have to respect each other's role in the process that's because right. that's where we get caught up. We start harming each other and getting confused and letting the chaos and taking on the values of the systems that allows us to be disrupted ourselves. And then we get all out of order. But we got to stay true to who we are and what we came here for. And there's so many ways we can do that. There's not one way. If we had a whole nother couple hours, we could all talk and sit in this room and talk about how we're going to do it, because that's what's important when we leave here, is reconnecting to like, all right, I'm going to continue in this, or I'm going to do this differently. And that's what's really, really important as we move from this space. Uh, that, that might be the follow-up. We need some ongoing community meetings and workshops on how we implement what we talked about today. Thank you for your question. Next. And I like that leaving it better than how you found it, too, because if we all just thought like that, if we went out each day and just left the world better than what we found it, where would we be? Amen. Amen. Yes. Hi. Thank you for, for saying things today because you made a question pop into my mind that I don't know if I would have thought of this question on my own otherwise. Um, but the, the whole thing with how King was killed by law enforcement, why didn't anyone march for him? Why didn't anyone march for Malcolm X? Because I'm pretty sure he also got killed by law enforcement. And should we? Well, historically, people did march for King. In fact, most of the cities burned um, as a result of it. Um, so there was activity, and people called out, here was the apostle for nonviolence taken away by gun violence. Um, and there was movement after Malcolm, X, Malcolm X's death as well. Um, his organization lived on. So there was activity. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yes, no, there was. But, but, I mean, it's a fair question, and maybe people don't see it that way. 
Uh, but that did definitely happen. And I would just add, um, we want to lift up our sisters and brothers in Selma. As with other tornado, we go to Selma every year to be a part of the Bridge Crossing Jubilee. We invite people to go there the anniversary of Bloody Sunday. Um, I always like to remind people that Malcolm went to Selma. And when he was there, he, after speaking in the pulpit with Mrs. King, he was driven to Birmingham to see Martin in jail. And the two of them agreed when Dr. King got out of jail to come together. Now imagine the power of Malcolm and Martin actually coming together. This is after that famous picture of them running into each other in the hallway. Um, Malcolm was killed by law enforcement two weeks after that agreement with Dr. King. And most of us don't think that was a coincidence at all. And so this continues to happen. The question is, what are we gonna do about it? Dr. Dennis Moore, what are we going to be willing to give our lives for not what not when people take our lives but even though Jalen's life was taken his life still is for us because his life his martyrdom gives us an opportunity to continue to reform the police here and elsewhere uh, issue 10 and otherwise that's that's not a wasted life that is still a martyrdom for justice so there are those of us who will be innocently martyred, and then there are those of us who, frankly, will have to make the conscious decision to risk being martyred. Provoke, that's right. And I say, you know, look, look at it, y'all. If they're going to kill us anyway, why don't we decide how we're going to die and what we're going to die for? Just, that's just something to think about. Uh, was there another question? Yeah, I got it. Yes, sir. Thank you for your question, though. More, more so a statement. Um, first of all, Bobby, you know, you're my favorite colonizer, you know what I'm saying? And I say that <laughs> oh, with great man. respect. With great respect. Hold on a minute. That I was love, rough, I love man. you, though. That's I love rough. you. You be, you be talking it, man. That was rough. You right talking. in the face. But uh, we were talking about the community. Oh first of all, my name is Demetrius Travis Sr., and I say that because my name is marked because I'm a family member of Jalen, and I got out protesting and walking the streets, and I put myself on the line because for what, what, the way I see it, my cousin lost his life for me to now have a purpose. I was going around just doing things, but now I have a purpose, right? Yeah. And so there's a, another part of this story I'm connected. Jalen had a fiance mm. named Jamisha. Jamisha was also my cousin on my other side of the family. And they tried to sell him as this person who was on a depressed path. So there's angry people on both sides of this thing, right? And we was talking about that. And I'm looking around and I'm like, it's a lot of empty chairs. How do I get to the community to tell them the next time we have a setting like this to fill up the seats? How do I get to these people? to kill the fear because I had close family to me telling me, you better be careful. You got to be careful. Mm. The police going to do this. You got to be careful. I'm not being careful. They wasn't careful when they decided to take his life. Why should I be careful? Mm. We also got to sell something to the people to make them feel like they can fight back. You feel what I'm saying? Yeah. 
because too many, I mean, I'll talk to them. They want to do things different. I know we got to do it in a um, cordial way with laws and everything else, but some of them want to say, they say this, the saying of bringing a knife to a gunfight. They come with us with attacking and murdering and, and we coming back with words. How do we fight against that? How do we sell people that the way you're trying to do it is the right way to do it? Is my question. Because this is, I'm, any, anytime you open this panel up like this, I'm gonna ask the same question. How do I get to the people that's in the street, that's ready to rage, tear things up, to tell them, don't go do that? You know what I'm saying? And, that, and I'll leave it with that. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. I just wanna, I know it looks like we're being told the time, right? Yeah, we don't have a lot of time, but go ahead. That's an important question. I think language matters. And, um, you know, families, the Walker family included, will always make sure that they are asking people to be nonviolent, right? Or should, they should, because you're the leader, unfortunately. You are placed in a position where now, as a family who's lost a loved one, you have a leadership role in how a movement plays out. It's an unfortunate position to be in, but nonetheless, that's what happens. People stick a microphone in your face, they wanna hear from you. But words matter, because there is a difference between saying nonviolent and peaceful. You can't have a movement that says no justice, no peace, and then tell people peace, right? It doesn't work in some folks' mind. Although we understand the purpose is to keep people from burning buildings and creating distractions, because that's what that becomes. Soon as the building is burned, soon as the glass starts breaking, it's gonna be a distraction where the news, I, I literally watched it happen in maybe a five minute time period. I was on the phone with Mark Thompson at about four o'clock in the morning while I was sitting in the middle of Minneapolis where uh, George Floyd was killed. And for one moment, there was you know, peaceful protest. And within a five minute time period to something burning, the, meat, the news just shifted. It, went, it totally just went away from what happened to, the young, to this man and the knee on his neck, and it just shifted to violence and people you know, looting, and, and, and we, we, we literally watched this happen, which is how the next day, when, or hours later, I guess at 11 o'clock or so, when I was speaking, I was so outraged because I knew what they were trying to do to shift it to people in Target and folks right. burning down buildings, and that's where the outrage came in me to, to say, we don't give a damn if they burn down Target. Don't talk to us about Target. Target should be out here with us, and ironically, Ironically, days later, Target released a statement that they would not have anyone arrested for going into their building and taking, you know, milk and whatever other things folks were uh, stealing from the store. And later on, they actually purchased 9,000 of my books, which was very, very interesting. I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, okay. I thought I was, you know, on Target's hate list or hit list forever. But I, I say this because, again, when we allow people to trick us into being their mouthpiece, they put it in our heads that our people are so violent, 
when the truth is most of our protests, probably over 90% of our protests are nonviolent. The people who cause violence generally show up to the protests as detractors who are there to create other things outside of folks being able to pay attention to the purpose of the movement. Uh, undercover cops. Right. So we, and exactly, exactly. Well, Let's talk general. about it. Police right, it can general, be because they be, show up with their gear on, so you're already creating right, the they're tone. creating tension. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you are so on point with that. When they show up with the with their gear and they're in their riots, you're just um, you're setting the tone for violence. Exactly. So you can't expect nonviolence. It's antagonizing the tone, right? Which is why I I don't. When people of my age get all riled up about, oh, did you see this on Twitter and did you see this on Instagram and this another person died, it's just like, don't you, you can't believe that. You can't get wrapped up in that story because that's what they want you to see. Exactly. It's only a piece and it's only a part of it. And uh, what, as the gentleman said, he said something about um, a lot of people might be like afraid to go out there. I feel like that's a piece of it. They want us to be afraid to go out there. It's the way that it's the, and, and it's the, the point is that the tone that we set, mm -hmm. right? And I'm not talking again about families. I'm talking about those of us who are leaders. The tone that we set and the lawyers, the things that we say, it matters because what it says to, when, they, when people hear, when they know they're already peaceful, they already know that. And then they hear you saying that to them, something goes off in their mind that says stay home because we already, we're being told right. to do something or we're being chastised by our own people for something that we don't do. If you say nonviolent, we got that, no problem. But we don't feel peaceful. I'm not, I don't feel like being politically correct in this moment. So I need, I, I am outraged. I want to scream, yell, I might say some cuss words, throw some fists in the air. You know, I, sometimes I march with people and they have some real serious chants that I don't agree with. But again, going back to King in the Wilderness, I just keep walking with my head straight. And, and as long as no one catch me on camera saying whatever, then I'm, I'm cool with it. But I refuse to stop and tell Ray Ray that he has to silence his voice for these folks that killed us to be comfortable. Yeah. So I would just say today, what we have to do as a movement, as a movement, brother, is be very mindful of the language that we're using when we're talking to traumatized people who are trying to respond to constant abuse and threat to our lives right. as a people. That's right. Uh, I, think we, I think we have one more question from one of the young people. Do we? Is that you? No. No? Okay. Did you have a question? Okay. If you want. Oh, it's you. Oh, you had the badge on. I thought you were working. I'm sorry. Okay, I thought you were working. I thought, they, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Is the mic on? Because we're streaming, we get everybody, we can hear you in the hall, but everybody else can't hear you. And then the mic went. You gotta hold, hold it at the bottom. Push that thing at the bottom and hold it until you see the green light come on. If you see the light come on, let it go. Look on the side, you'll see the green light. Let me see. Let me see. Is it this one? 
Hello. Testing, one, two, three. All right, this is my question. How can we as parents, because I have young ones in um, an APS, and there's a lot of stuff going on in the schools, and I don't know if everybody else has seen the video that I just seen with the dad talking about the STEM program and the racism that's going on in STEM. Right. So how can we really fight into our school districts to make sure that these children are being aware of everything that's going on with the Jalen Walker, right. putting black history yeah. into our schools? Because I think that's important. I took black history in right. school, but I just want to figure out how can we, because I'm an activist on all many levels, but I just want to see it coming into our schools so my daughter can learn. Right. Uh, before we get an answer to that, were there any other questions? Mm. Okay, that's, okay. Right here, right? So let me do that. I'm going to get all these, these last questions briefly and then let all the panelists answer them. So the first question, you all remember that? How do we get this more prevalent in the schools? That's part of the fight. That's what Tucker Carlson and them are fighting against, us teaching truth in the schools. Yes, quickly, please. Um, my name is Gabriella Falconer. I attend Archbishop Hoban High School. I'm the current junior class president as well as the next Black Student Union president. All right now. My, um, yeah. <laughs> and my um, question was very similar to hers. How do we incorporate the movement into the school systems as well as panels and different events like this? Because I feel as if a lot of our youth don't even know there is a movement. All right. They don't even know. And, and the last one. What's up, brother? Hello. How you doing? Uh, just real quick. You bring me I'll back just, that coat that you had on last night? Right? It's in the car for you, right. brother. It's a bad coat. Uh, I, real think quick, I, just wanted, I think it'll fit me. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, I just want to know about the eight officers who are on desk duty. Uh, are there any pending charges for them? And if so, what are the charges that they are facing at this time? At this okay. time, at this time, Bureau of Criminal Investigation has not released its report. And any charges would be based on that report. So your question is a good question, but right now we don't have any information from BCI to, in, to, to deal with or create charges, and so none exist at this time. Will they have charges? We'll see. Yeah. Um, Casey, the school system, how do we get this in the schools, have these conversations? I believe the best thing to do is to educate us. Uh, oh, sorry. I believe the best thing to do is to educate and I know at my school, we have the Black Student Union, and they do a lot of great things, especially with educating the black students in my school. And I believe that this could be incorporated at many other schools. So by having like after school groups and stuff that educates us on these kind of things so we can know about it and know that we can be involved. Because without knowing, I believe there's nothing that we can do because we just don't know. Yeah. And no, I, I was just gonna add a little bit to that. Um, in any school district, first of all, I wanna say thank you to the parents. Um, I don't want you to fight them. I want you to go in there and join them. I need you to go in there, make sure your voice is heard and they understand what the issues are so that we can move the needle. And earlier in the panel, we talked about how we need younger folk to get involved. All of us are over 35, except these beautiful young ladies here. Okay, yeah, I'm only 35, but I'm there for you. Um, and the young lady, Sister Falconer, these two young ladies right here, and the young men that aren't represented up here, we need your voices. We need you not just to give it to the black folks in your school, but to all the students in your school. As we are doing our day of doing um, tomorrow, uh, Monday, 
Um, we have young people from Revere High School who are gonna be joining us um, to help make sure we can continue the conversation. We've got to keep the doors open, but we also have to make sure we're at the table. So I appreciate these young folks who are at the table in their schools to help make change, but help us also make that change. Amen. Amen. You go to the schools, you do your thing in school, but then come to the school board meetings, come out here to community groups and keep reminding us of why we do what we do. Amen, amen. And I think um, the one young lady that went to Art Bishop, that's how you, I think that's the biggest part of how you do and um, make sure change is at your school and you have initiatives like that is just simply being a part of that and making spaces for black students to speak at, talk to, even if it is just showing up and um, chilling, um, even Black United students, because I'm a, um, a Kent State student. So like Oscar Ritchie Hall, that is our hangout place. Even if we're not doing anything, we're still chilling there. We're having conversations. We're, you know, we're making spaces. We're making our own program. So I think that's very, very important. I want to add one small thing. Yes. The education system is a system as well, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. they're all systems. Like, we got to be here to disrupt them all and be willing to do it. Um, and so that's a part of it. And so all of us, again, in that system have a role. That's but right. these young ladies have said it's so beautiful. And I guess my thing or point that comes to mind when y'all talk about um, coming together and y'all's voices being heard is know that, so Dr. King talks about that we have to be co-workers with God. And so young people have to know and are not always told that, like, God lives in you. Like, the power mm. that you have when you come together and what you have the power to do is so great. And what you were just talking about, Tamika, around, because what that is, is, is psychological chains of slavery. It's how people right. get caught up and they get chained in their mind to get silent, to get still, to fight. But, like, if you recognize who you are and who you're connected to and who your people are, then you can move differently, you speak right. differently, you change right. policy That's differently. Right. And so the young people have so much more power than you yeah, think you do. Right. So much more power than you think you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Folks, um, we're going to let Mice close us out for this panel, and then we're going to transition to the next panel. Um, but first of all, let's give these panelists a round of applause. And we appreciate everyone. Um, Mice, is a cord? Pass me this cordless. One, two, one, two. So in the spirit of Dr. King and us talking about our roles in this movement, this is a piece that I wrote called I Don't Have the Right to Do Nothing. I sat and talked with a legend and I eagerly listened. He told me how he marched with Dr. King because he believed in his mission. He invested his money and his time to change our people's conditions. And all I could think as I heard this man speak with conviction is I don't have the right to do nothing. Because Harry's Belafonte sacrificed for people like me. So if he decided to do nothing, then where would I be? You see, if he was just content with his celebrity status, there wouldn't be an until freedom or Black Lives Matter. So I don't have the right to do nothing because we stand on the shoulders of our elders. We got to continue their fight against a system that failed us. Mr. B tells us, he drills in our mind, we got to carry that torch. You see, this is our time. Injustice is a crime, but it's about execution. And those directly impacted must be the solution. So I don't have the right to do nothing because revolution is a part of evolution. 
And our forefathers weren't given no restitution. They were given destitution and treatment that's inhumane. So if we ain't part of the solution, how the hell are we going to complain so I don't have the right to do nothing? I'm on a mission. I'm screaming until they listen. Dr. King died for freedom. I'm carrying on tradition. My people want justice. I'm carrying that petition. Police is out here killing us. We're going to need some more convictions. Peaceful and passive are not the same thing. Know the difference. We are not supposed to lay down and die with no resistance, so I don't have the right to do nothing. I don't have the right not to fight for my life. It's a gift from God. So with all of my might, I will protect my freedom, my family, my home. I know y'all going to fight Let's hear it for my son. Let's hear it for this panel. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all. Give them all a round of applause. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. As always, perform an act of kindness on behalf of an elder or young person. Write a letter to a sister or brother who just so happens to find her or himself incarcerated. Offer libations to the ancestors upon whose sturdy shoulders we all now stand. And above all, give thanks to the God of your understanding by whatever name you call her and him. All God asks of us is that we give each other love. Thanks for giving MIP love. And please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain.